All right, hey, um, last week, just a little bit of review. We're talking about Constitution and bylaws, one of your favorite topics in school. Many of you, how many people like, you know, Constitution? There we go, government guy back there. Good job, Eric. One person in the whole room actually liked this topic. Um, but th this topic becomes very personal because it's about our relationships with God and with each other. And, it, and I think it is actually very exciting. When you stop and think about what we talked about last week, a lot of people told me they, they thought that was exciting um, because last week we talked about our mission, our vision, and our values. What is our mission? Do you remember? Our mission is loving, and what else? Loving God, loving others, right? Pretty easy. So loving God, loving others. We love the world. Our love for the Lord leads us to love our, okay? So that's what it is. Loving God, loving others. Our love for the Lord leads us to love our world. Now, our vision, very in a very concise manner, is this, we're a simple church. We're, we're not pretty. We're not fancy. There's no bells and whistles. There's not tons of programs. We're not going to try to wow you. On Sunday morning, we're going to worship God and tell him how much we love him through song. And occasionally, you know, periodically, we're going to have uh, Lord's Supper, and I'm going to get up here and just teach what the Bible says um, and try to teach you more about what the Bible says and then how to apply it to your lives. And our main focus is going to be in helping you to grow in your relationship with God. And so one of the things we even came back to at our retreat, we said we really need to make this the main thing, is, is we need to get people growing in their relationship with God. And so our main focus, we want you to sign up, and there are sign-ups today for small groups. If you are in a small group, you want to be in a small group, you want to we especially need facilitators and so forth, you can sign up for that. We're going to get small groups going, but our main focus over this next year especially, is going to be in training people and helping people to grow in their personal relationship with the Lord through comprehensive discipleship. It won't be probably everybody, but enough people to, to really get the ball rolling and to develop people for leadership in these different groups and to teach people more how to reach out in their communities. And then when we go through that, then we're going to try to provide opportunities for you, and we'll be doing this shortly. I think with Halloween, we're going to be getting involved with, uh, with that program in town so that we can begin to have a witness. And and getting involved in the community. That makes sense? Pretty simple. We, we grow in our relationship with the Lord. We help each other. We build close relationships with each other. We take care of each other. And then we go out and we try to care for the people all around us. Kind of cool, huh? Thank you, Michelle. Michelle smiled. That makes me Good smile there, Michelle. Just as I looked over, she smiled just as I said that. So that was really good. Thank you. Um, now she's turning red. Um, <laughs> sorry, Michelle. Um, yeah, okay. So, you know, so it's, it's pretty exciting, I think, where we're going out of this. Now, our values are, are pretty basic. They are worship, Bible study, fellowship, outreach, and gifts. There was one other one that we were trying to figure out where does this fit, and we, we, we think it really fits as a value. So we've added it. And the last value is family. And we've written this, seek to make conventional biblical marriage between men and women uh, stronger and deeper that they commit to raising their children in a Christ-centered environment. Isn't that something we're missing in our world today? Is You know, that whole traditional thing that men and women get married forever, and they raise their kids to know the Lord, and so that they can get married forever and have happy, meaningful relationships. And we want to nurture that within our church. So that's a value for us. All right? That brings us to what we're talking about today, and that is our first bylaw. Your first bylaw is, okay, so that's what you're all about. What are the things that are going to support that? If you're a church, what do you believe in? So we're talking about the statement of faith, which emphasizes faith. This is what we believe in. 
All right? Sometimes they call it a doctrinal statement. Doctrine means what? Does anybody know what doctrine means? It's a really fancy word. It's like when you go, go to buy a, you know, a, 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 a part for your car and they throw you some crazy name that, you, you know, if you're not a car guy, you don't know what they're talking about and you feel dumb. Um, and, and it's just basically ranch is what we're talking about. Uh, in this case, doctrine, all doctrine means is teaching. So this material can be looked at either way. It's what we believe in and it's what we teach. Okay, so it's the undergirding of what we believe in and what we teach. Now, there's tons of stuff here. And I could spend, there's nine kind of, under, you know, nine different points. I could spend a sermon on each point. But I'm going to give you a big overview today, just an overarching overview. Is it, you know, have you ever noticed that people will argue about the Bible? Have anybody ever noticed that? What people, I talked to a guy yesterday, I went to traffic school, okay? So my points are gone, I got everything taken care of. And I ran into a couple people, yeah. And I ran into a couple people I knew from church there. It was pretty funny. Um, two pastors in the room. Oh, man, it was very humbling. But I got to talk to the guy a little bit about the Lord, you know. And, um, and, and that was kind of, he was talking about how people don't get along with what the Bible says. If you read the Bible based on what the Bible, the intent of the writers, if you take the perspective, I want to write, read just not what I read into it, but what the writers are saying, what their intent is, you'll find that people really don't disagree on very much. The things they tend to disagree on are the things that God doesn't give a black and white answer to. And for some reason, we feel like we have to give a black and white answer to those things. And we'll divide churches and we'll fight over those things. So what we're being very intentional in doing is giving what I would call a generic um, doctrinal statement or statement of faith. It's a statement that is broad enough that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't deal with the grays. The things that we're saying here black and white stuff. These are the indisputable things. These are the things everybody agrees on. So listen closely because you should, basically these are things you should already agree with. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a good time for you to review and say, yeah, is that, that's what I believe in. Or to say, oh, I didn't even know that. That's good. That's what I should believe in. Obviously, there are sometimes wordings. People say, well, I don't know if I understand the way you worded that. That's okay. We're willing to talk and we're bend, we can flex on the wording. But the idea is, in general, this is what we should all believe in. This is kind of neat, really. A time to review what is it that we all believe in. So I'm going to walk through that with you. And the first thing that we say is we believe in the Bible. We believe the entire Bible to be inspired by God and without error in its original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the final authority for the faith and life of a Christ follower. We, we use different places. We pulled from different places. To this We've even had some consultants um, review it and edit it. And um, this first paragraph here, everyone is followed by loads of verses. So we have all sorts of verses that support what we say. What are we saying there? This is kind of Christianese, you know, I mean, this fancy language. It's trying to cover it all. Um, trying to make it as concise as possible. When we talk about the Bible, we say it's inspired. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 is my favorite verse related to this. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 starts off and says, all scripture is God-breathed. That's what we're talking about. Inspired in Greek literally means God-breathed. Isn't that descriptive? God-breathed through a person. God spoke through a person. God wrote through a person. The understanding that these guys had, now get this, this is their understanding, is that God takes 
He doesn't dictate the Bible, but he takes a person's personality, gifts, writing style, background, culture, language, and yet he says precisely what he wants to say through that person. Not a dictation, but a supernatural breathing through that enables him to, to get across to us exactly what he wants. Isn't that cool? That's what the Bible says. And we still believe it. We don't believe that things have changed. That's what the Bible has always said. That's what's always been believed. And if you believe, that's the intent of the authors. That's what they wanted you to believe. If I wrote you a letter and I said something really, you know, said something to you, I don't want you to say, well, this is what I think he really meant. I want you to say, this, what did he mean? What was his intent? And it's very clear that that's what the authors want us to believe. The question is, do we believe it? We believe it. The four of us have put this together, and we believe that you believe that this is God-breathed. What is God-breathed? All of it. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Interesting, Paul is writing Timothy in the first section there, and in 1 Timothy, he's writing another letter to Timothy, and in chapter 5, verse 18, he says something interesting. He says, for the scripture, or the Bible says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. That's kind of like, well, wow, that's, whoa, never thought of that. Um, Actually, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Where is that located? Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. The very next sentence part, he says, and the worker deserves his wages. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Where is he quoting from? New Testament. So Paul is saying both the Old Testament and New Testament are Scripture. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The Old Testament as it existed during Jesus' lifetime, Jesus says this is it. It will never pass away. It is God-breathed. And that's the Old Testament we have today. And in the New Testament, in other passages, like in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about Paul's writings are Scripture. They're God-breathed. They're saying that about each other. Isn't that cool? They say that about each other. So we know that to be true. What's interesting in the Bible is, did you know that it was about, after, after you know, all the Bible had been written, all this persecution came in, and people had to go undercover and hide? Can you imagine not being able to share things? Can you imagine not, you know, some of you kids, you know, you had something, you, you can't play with it or whatever. You have to hide it away because somebody might confiscate it or take it. You know, what if they take away your Bible from you? So people didn't have all the Bibles because they didn't have computers and printing machines and so forth. So they just had, you know, sections of it. And then around 330, uh, AD 330, Constantine becomes emperor and he says, let's all get together and bring what you have of the Bibles. Well, they all have different sections, and, some of, and many of them, surprisingly, they can't believe how many of them have the same stuff. And they all agree. I mean, there's just like they're, they're putting this out on the table, and they're, putting, they're going through it, and they're scrutinizing it. They throw out stuff like, you know, some of the stuff you hear about today, like what, what is it that, you know, that some of the books you have, like the, the uh, Gospel According to Barnabas and all these other books that come out, and the Gospel According to Thomas, and people get, oh, that was, that was originally part of the Bible. They just... They didn't have any question with that because it didn't meet their criteria. It had to be something that they knew who the author was. It had to be something where it agreed with all of the other things that were said in Scripture. It had to be something that was written with the power of God, thus saith the Lord. You know, and, it, and it had to be something everybody agreed with. And if in doubt, they threw it out. Unbelievable. That was a miracle. 
that it wasn't even that difficult. It was just kind of there. There was some drama that came in later in, in exactly putting it all together. But eventually, it, it just, that was it. And it's never changed since then. And that's the Bible we believe in to this day. We believe it's the miraculous Word of God. God breathed. In its original writings, which is to say that, yeah, it's true. When you go back to the writings of the Bible, there are some things that we know there are mistakes that were made. Uh, we can find, because we can go through hundreds and thousands of copies and compare them to each other, and we can find that sometimes the word and is missing. And sometimes a sentence isn't quite grammatically correct. And sometimes maybe the right, wrong word is used here. And there's a couple paragraphs of narratives, short stories that maybe weren't original, but they don't disagree with the Bible. You can take all that stuff out because it's so little, and it won't really have any bearing on what the Bible says as a whole. And in fact, if you have a study Bible like I have, they will actually have footnotes that will explain to you everything that's even questionable. There's no writing ever written that has been scrutinized more than the Bible. How many people read Shakespeare? In Oakdale, probably not too many. Where's, <laughs> where's, where's, <laughs> we've got one person. We got, I mean, you know, I mean, did you read, you read Shakespeare? Good, good. They're in the back, because you guys have to, though. That's not fair. You have to read Shakespeare. Yeah, for school, right? Noah, back there. Yeah, so, so you know, sorry, but Shakespeare, I mean, he just didn't ride horses and stuff like that, you know? Um, he wasn't a cowboy. But, but uh, I know what you have to read. You have to read Odyssey. Kids have to read Odyssey and Iliad and Homer in school. You know what? We don't know what those guys wrote and what they didn't write. There are so many different versions we don't even know, and that's a lot more modern than the Bible because as we go through it and start scrutinizing it, I mean, whole sections, whole stories. A lot of people think a lot of what, what Shakespeare wrote was really written by Ben Johnson. We don't know. But we go to the Bible, and we scrutinize it so carefully that we know. We know exactly every question, and we've scrutinized those questions, and we say, if we don't know for sure, throw it out. And you still have the same message. That's something. And so that's what we believe in. We believe in what the Bible says. Um, now, the question sometimes is, what comes first here? Should we have started with God because God gave us the Bible? But we started with the Bible because it's through the Bible that God tells us about himself. God reveals himself, what's called natural revelation. He naturally reveals himself through nature. You just look out the door, through trees and through plants. And people say, wow, I look at this stuff and I've got to believe it's real. He re reveals himself through people. He reveals himself through miracles. But the main place he reveals himself through is the Bible because that tells us about who he is. So what does he tell us about himself? This is the next one. We believe God is one God, creator of all things, holy and infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Old Testament or New? Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Old Testament or New? Both agree that God is one God. He is one God. He is the creator. Genesis 1. What does it say? In the beginning, God did what? Created heaven and earth. He is the creator. He is the supreme being. He has always eternally existed. His name, Yahweh, means that he is self-existent, that he has always existed and he always will. He is perfect in every sense. We can find no imperfection with him in scriptures. This is the God of the universe. He is the supreme being of the universe. He could be a mean and capricious God, but he's a kind God and a loving God and a just God. 
He wants to relate to all of us as a father to his children. That's why Jesus teaches us that we should pray to him and say, our father who is in heaven. We should pray to him as our father, as our daddy. Jesus calls him Abba, which is similar to daddy, Papa. He wants us to crawl, out, crawl up in his lap, figuratively speaking, and talk to him as our father. But we've got a problem. And the problem is, if you go to the beginning of the Bible, the 26th verse of the Bible, it says this. Then God said, let us, let us, is that plural or singular? Let us. Plural, right? Make man, man in our, plural, image in our plural likeness. Who else is he with him? Who's with him? Isn't that weird? Okay, some people know the answer. Don't, come on, Kathy. This is figurative. This was kind of, you know, it was, you, know I, you weren't supposed to answer it. You know, you were, that's all right. No, that's okay. Um, she knows uh, he's talking about Jesus, right? So you go to the New Testament, and in John chapter 1, he gives commentary on this from, from, the, from a new perspective now that Jesus has come to earth. And in John chapter 1, verse 3, he reveals who the other person is. He says, in the beginning was the word. Word is logos in Greek, and it means the expression of something, the exact representation of something. And this is a nickname, in a sense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... So the Word and God are one. Who's the Word? It drops down, and it says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and it goes on to describe, from that point forth, the rest of the book is about the Word, and the Word is... So Jesus and God are God. And later we find out the same thing is true in the Holy Spirit. A really powerful passage is when Jesus is baptized. Get this, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, Jesus is God, Son of God, he went out of the water, up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, descending on him as a dove and lighting on him. And then he heard a voice from heaven, this is my Son, God the Father in heaven, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Do you see all three of them there? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, when we baptize somebody, we baptize them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do you understand this? This is one of my favorite teachings theologically because it's one of the things that sets us apart as believers. No other religion in history that I know of has ever come up with anything even similar to this. Every other religion has many gods or one. Only Christianity has one God, three persons in one. You can't put my God in a box. He's gonna do it different than anybody else. Nobody else could have come up with this idea. And so you put your fingers up if you want like this. This is a good way to remember. You've got three fingers. That's one God. He separates them. You've got three. So you've got tri, three, unity. Tri-unity. I like that. Three in one. One God who represents himself in three persons. People have tried to figure this out, and they've actually gone insane. And if they haven't gone insane, <laughs> they've written, so don't do it, okay? Be careful. And other people have written and changed it. They say, this can't possibly be true, so this is what it must be, and generally they end up starting cults, all right? 
Just take it for what it says. We can't explain it. All we know, if you go through it, it just constantly, constantly, constantly equate these three together as one, and yet they say they're separate, and it says that they existed for eternity, and we can't figure that out. We just know that's what it says. We don't have to understand it all. We just know that's what it says because this is far and beyond what we can fully understand. And we believe that. And so we believe that God is our Father. He wants to relate to us in one sense, but also he comes in other ways. He comes as the Son. And that's our next one is we believe Jesus Christ is true God and true man, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, substituting himself um, to receive our penalty uh, according to the scriptures, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God as our high priest and advocate. Kind of celebrative words there, and pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Jesus, um, at, at Christmas time comes, and we talk about Luke 1, right, in verses 24 through 28, and it says that Mary was a virgin. And she says, how am I going to have a baby? And God says, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit you see, is going to come on you like a cloud. And when he's gone, you're going to be pregnant. And you're going to have a baby. And that baby is going to be God. And yet, he's going to be born through a woman. He's 100% God, son of God, 100% man, son of man. The most unique being to ever walk on the soil of this planet. A man who was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Is that wild? That's what the Bible says about Jesus. It says that he never sinned. There is no record of him ever sinning. And it says that his purpose was to recognize that none of us in our earthly form could ever get to God on our own. And so God came to us, which is also different than every other religion that I'm aware of. In every other religion, it's about man finding God. But in Christianity, God comes to man. Jesus lives this perfect life and then he dies on the cross for our sins. His close friend Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Uh, the beginning there in verse 18, he says, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, now chew on that for a minute. He who's the right guy dies for the wrong guy. He becomes unrighteous in a sense that we might become righteous. He dies, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, he dies cursed on a tree that we might be free, that we might be seen as clean. He dies for you. You should have died. You are, are really, when you think about how perfect God is, and you think of how easy it is for us to look down on things that are smaller than ourselves, you know, we just don't regard things at times you know, we look at ants and we say, <laughs> you know what I mean? But God is bigger than us than ants. And he says, I love you enough that I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to sacrifice for you that you might live. We believe that about Jesus. And we believe that he didn't stay dead that he rose from the grave supernaturally and there's evidence of that all throughout the Bible and throughout history and that he now is in heaven at the right hand of God. Do you believe that? That's what we believe. That's what the Bible says about him. Now, what does it have to say about the Holy Spirit? This is what it says. We believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead and came to glorify Jesus Christ or make him known. 
During this present age, he convicts people of their sin, regenerates the believing sinner, indwells, gifts, guides, instructs, and empowers the Christian, the Christ follower, for godly living and service. A lot of stuff there. But you know, when, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, um, Jesus says that he's the one, essentially, that makes you start thinking about God. Did you ever remember, maybe you remember before you were a Christian that certain things you kind of felt like somebody was in the room and nobody was there? You ever had that feeling? You ever read something and all of a sudden it kind of steps out to you and you feel guilty? You ever hear somebody speak and all of a sudden it's like you say, he's only speaking to me, I'm the only person in the room he's speaking to? That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now Jesus says in John chapter 3, he says that when a person yields to that, I think it's verse 3, it starts with, when a person yields to that, God actually gives them new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes you a believer of Jesus Christ. He does something miraculous. I don't know. You can't see it. It's almost like being baptized by water spiritually. And he cleanses you out and he changes you. And in John chapter 14, verse 7, John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and that you come to live in the Holy Spirit. Is that wild? Do you believe that? Is that possible? That the God of the universe in a spiritual form can come and live inside of you? And that you can somehow be inside of him? It's like this bubble around you? That's what the Bible teaches. That we are in him and he is in us. And that's why after I came to the Lord, when I'd read the Bible, I would see things and it would make sense to me that never made sense to me before. And that's why there were things I used to do that never bothered me and all of a sudden I felt guilty because I knew I was doing the wrong thing. And that's why I was able to have joy on a level that I'd never had before. You see, if you keep in connection with God and you talk to him, it's like the spiritual umbilical cord between the Holy Spirit and God. And so once you come into relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, you can start talking to him as your father. And it, it says in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it says that in Romans 5, 12 through 14, it actually says that we are adopted by God because of what Jesus did and through the Holy Spirit. And so God becomes spiritually our adopted father. And now he's Abba Daddy. And you can relate to him because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. If, if I stop talking to my dad for a while, I don't call him, it was his birthday this week. Maybe he'll forget mine, you know, so there's incentive. There. But, but if I don't talk to him, what happens? My relationship gets strained, right? The longer I don't talk to him, he calls me up and, and you know, I say, Dad, I'm preaching right now. Turn it off and put it away and I don't call him back. What happens to my relationship with my dad? Does my dad still love me? Yeah. Am I still his son? Yeah. What's my relationship like? See, a lot of people that are Christ followers live their lives that way. They get out of communication with their Heavenly Father. And, they, and they, they suppress the power that's within them. It lays dormant and their life stagnates. And so oftentimes they're among the most miserable people on earth. But if you talk regularly to God and you read your Bible regularly and you interact with other Christ followers and do the things God asks you to do, then you are amazed as you find, as the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 23 through, 22 through 23, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit in our life. You'll experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
gentleness, self-control, things on a level that you've never experienced before in your life. And you can't explain where it's coming from other than it's supernatural. And as we walk with God on a regular basis and we have a crisis in our life or we have a situation where we're in a tight spot, God just shows up. I love what Jesus told his disciples. He says, you're going to be asked some really tough questions, some really hard things are going to happen to you in your life. Well, what are we going to do about it? Don't worry, he said. At that time, Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, at that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. You ever had a situation like that? Somebody asked you a really tough question about your faith, and all of a sudden you said something that a theologian would say, and you didn't know where you got it from, and it's just like, wow, I was able to answer that question and really help that person. I sometimes, when I'm speaking, I sense that God is just saying things through me that I you know, even didn't expect I was going to say. That's the Holy Spirit working through us. It says in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, and also in 1 Peter 4, that there are spiritual gifts that he gives us. Now, let's, let's put it this way. If you believe, and this guy I talked to yesterday, he said he believed that there was a supreme being. He'd been a police officer for years, and so he said, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. Randy, you've seen it all. When you, you're, you're a, a fireman. You, when you're a fireman, police officer, you've seen it all, and you've seen God show up. You see miracles. You see people live that shouldn't have lived. You see people should have gotten hit by that car, and they didn't. And you see people that, you know, you take them out with the jaws of life, and you're thinking they're not alive, and they're alive, and they're not even injured. And you say, you know, there's stuff like that you can't explain. Doctors, you know, they may not believe, but I, I've had doctors tell me, I can't explain this. You know, you have your beliefs. I know you're a believer, and I can't explain it. I just know that something supernatural happened. So if you believe there's a supreme being, what if this supreme being is talking to us through the Bible and telling us what we can believe? Who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want to relate to that supreme being if he's good and kind and loving and just as the perfect father? And if you realize you couldn't do that on your own and Jesus died for you and you could do it through him and have supernatural power in you through God to, to experience all these things, why wouldn't you want that? I think this guy kind of basically said it. What he basically said is he wants to believe what he wants to believe, what works for him. But in order to have this, you have to believe what God, you know, what is reality, what God says. And as I go to that, this next thing really talks about us. The next thing we believe is that people were made in the image of God but fell into sin and therefore are lost and only saved through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When a person surrenders and receives Jesus Christ, they are born again through the Holy Spirit and are adopted into the family of God. Remember, that's what we were talking about. But the situation must be understood. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 is loud and clear. For all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. The word for sin, as you've probably heard before, uh, it literally means to miss the mark. You know when you're shooting with a bow and arrow? And what happens? You miss it. How far off? This far? Anybody here do archery? Yeah, you got a couple. And you miss it. It's frustrating, right? It's hard. I was doing archery once at Hume Lake, and it's just like I started off really well, but then they said to hit. I, I was hit, getting close to hitting the target, but then I was, if I hit another target, I got a free meal. And I think I just got so excited, and I couldn't hit it. I just kept going all over the place. It's hard. Reality is sometimes we hit the mark, 
but usually we're a little off. In fact, we're always off when we're trying to do it on our own because only God is really perfect. If it, what sin really means is anything we do apart from God. If God is helping us and empowering us and telling us to do it, then it's God. If we're trying to do it on our own, even if it looks good, it's rebellious and we're doing it for selfish reasons and for ourselves to look good and for our own purposes and what we can get out of it. That's why when a kid is born, what is usually one of the first words that a child speaks? No. <laughs> no. Right? And another one that follows pretty close. Mine. Mine. And we grow up as adults and we say it in different ways, but we adults still are going around saying, no, no, mine, mine. You know, we spend our lives doing that, right? And, and the Bible says that's, that's what basic sin is. We're trying to look out for ourselves. We're rebelling against God. And so we're in a bad state. And that's why the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. That's what we deserve. Romans 6, 23 is death. But the gift of God, God gives a gift. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we surrender to Jesus as our Lord, we can live with him forever in heaven. Nothing we can do on our own. One of the, the best verses on this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Nothing you can do on your own. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. So if I was to give somebody a gift today, you know, I just go up and I give it to them. Like if I give you this, CJ, you want this? Hmm? He doesn't want it, see? So you know what that means. No, but I mean, <laughs> if he doesn't want it, then he says no, right? But if he says, I want it, then he can have it. That's what a gift is, right? That's a good, a good example. We can decide whether we're going to accept it or not. Thanks, because I need this pen. <laughs> and we didn't even set that up. That worked out great. Um, but, but good job, CJ. Good, good job. Help, thanks for helping me there, buddy. Um, and so the, the whole basic idea here is there's nothing we can do but fall on our face and say, your will be done. I follow you. And once we do that, then all these other things take, come into play. And we come into a relationship with God. He adopts us. We begin to interact with him, and it all comes into play. Now that we've come to know the Lord, we can do better together than separately, right? And so at that point, we join together, and we join together, and that's what we call a church. We believe the true church is composed of those who are truly members of God's family, and only they are eligible for membership in the church. Water baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances to be observed by the church during the present age, but they are not a means to salvation. We've told you how you, you know, you're saved. But what this is telling us is, do you know what the word for church is ecclesia? Ecclesia literally means called out of. So it would be a gathering or an assembly, right? So you have a gathering in Israel, you have a gathering maybe at the temple, or in a synagogue, that's a gathering, that's an assembly, that's an ecclesia. In the secular world, it meant voting citizens of a city. So if you're going to start this gathering, it's kind of implied that you know, you, you, these people are going to have to make decisions about what you do. Do you want these people to be true followers, or can just anybody join in who believes whatever they want? What do you think? Y you want people, yeah, you want people, thanks Margie, Margie, Margie got it. Um, you want people who 
are all believing, you know, the same things. They all are grounded. They have the same beliefs. And so you can trust them and they're going to work together. And they are true followers of Jesus. The word disciple means follower. And so that's what we, that's the ancient word. The modern word would be their followers. They're true followers of Jesus. So that's what the church is. Now we've talked about the church last week. We're going to talk more about it next week. Suffice it to say that the, that baptism symbolizes that a person has come to know the Lord and it was kind of an, uh, in the early church, it was sort of a rite of entrance into the church. And, um, and the Lord's Supper is there to remind us not to, to fall away from God, to bring us back and to symbolize, you know, to help us remember what he did for us and help us to make sure we're, we're connected or reconnected and we're connected to one another so that we don't fall away and fall into the trouble that we've talked about. We'll talk more next week about this when we talk to membership. Um, the other thing that should happen with the church, and we'll also talk about this, cover it more next week, is that true followers of Christ should live redeemed lives by loving God supremely and others sacrificially. Loving God and loving others, right? Um, they should care for one another, in our small groups, that's what we'll be doing. And in our church, whatever needs that people have, have compassion on the poor and justice for the oppressed. This is something that's missing in a lot of churches, isn't it? But we really need to take care of one another and take care of people in the community. They are to make disciples or new believers among all people and always bear witness of their faith through word and deed. It's the same thing. We love one another. We love the people in the community. People come to know Christ. We teach them what we know. They turn around and they love others and they love others in the church and the community. They come to know Christ. And, and it's this that cycle we talked about last week. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover that more. But where does all of this lead? This is when I think it gets really exciting. We believe in the personal coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at a time known only to God and that this blessed hope should motivate the Christ follower to godly living and service. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? He's coming again. And when he comes, according to the passages we have, like Matthew chapter 24, it's going to blow you away. It's going to be the most incredible event that has ever happened yet in human history. The problem is we don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus himself says, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. So Jesus says that for some reason even he has suppressed this and doesn't know. Nobody knows. That's not true because I've had a lot of people tell me they know. <laughs> right? And that's the problem here. And that's one of the reasons why we kept this very generic and very open. I really don't want to get in an argument over how you think it's going to end because you don't know. And I can almost guarantee that it will be different from any theory ever concocted by men. It will surprise us all. So we, it's, it's nice to be able to say we don't know for sure. We can have our viewpoints. That's okay. I have mine. And you may have yours, but let's not fight about it. Okay. And so we look at this and we can learn and grow and try to look at the different ways that this is looked at, but we're not going to get an argument over it. We just know Jesus is coming again. And let me tell you something. We need to be prepared. Some think that Jesus is coming right away, that he could come any time through the rapture. Others think it may be later, after the tribulation and so forth. But one thing is for certain, when you die, Jesus is coming. He's coming to take you home. Right? So either way, he's coming. And you need to be prepared. And you need, it, it should fire you up to think about, I'm going to be in heaven one day and I want to live the best life I can and prepare for that time so that it's a wonderful entrance, whether he comes and gets me before or whether I'm here when it happens. And finally, the last thing we believe in is we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead 
of Christ's followers to enjoy everlasting joy with the Lord in heaven and of those who reject him to experience judgment and eternal separation and sorrow in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, and, and it's actually exciting for us as Christ followers. If you know the Lord, you're going to be in heaven one day. And one day, the most, the most incredible event ever, even topping the second coming, is going to happen. I want to read you just a section of it. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't say that the old earth is completely destroyed. It's like it's remodeled. Everything is remodeled. Everything is made perfect. Those trees aren't dying anymore. They're pristine. That sky doesn't have fog or smog or whatever. We don't want to know is in it. The waters are clean. Our bodies are healthy. A new heaven, a new earth. And he says um, that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They're not the same as they were. And, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's a speck in the sky. And as you're looking, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you recognize it's a city. And it's colorful and it's lighted up and it's spectacular and it's better than the show that they put on at the Olympics every couple of years. You know, this is the real deal. It's actually coming out of the sky. And, and, and then you hear something. And I heard a, a loud voice from the throne, like, like almost like you had, everybody has earphones so they can hear this. Now the dwelling of God is with men and women and he will live with them. No longer will we be separated from God, even physically. We will be with God face to face. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now catch this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You were made for heaven, whether you realize it or not. And everybody in this room imagines heaven, and we actually imagine it very similar to each other, and that's no mistake, because we all long for this perfect environment that we were made for. If you reject God, he will reject you. He is a patient and loving God that will give you so many years and time for your whole life, but if you reject him, then he rejects you. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. There are passages of Scripture that say that when a person dies that doesn't know God and goes to hell, that they burn infinitely for the rest of their lives. They're like on a consistent fire. It's kind of on fire but never fully burning up. However, Jesus uses a lot of hyperbole, a lot of figurative language. And so a lot of scholars, there's a lot of uncertainty on whether he really means that. It doesn't seem to tie in with other passages of Scripture where it seems like they, they aren't on fire. And probably I'm, I'm inclined to believe that he's using figurative language to say this. When you're separated from loved ones, when you're separated from joy, when you're separated from all the good that there is out there in life, when you've become your own God and you're living all by yourself and, and seeing what it's really like, 
it's going to feel like you're burning up. It's going to be a miserable existence. We don't like to talk about this. It's been probably abused the past few generations. But it is what the Bible says. And we might as well be open with it. Because I certainly don't want anybody to go there. So why would I want to hide it? I want them to go to heaven. And that's what I want to encourage. And so as we conclude today, there's, there's two things I want to leave you with. One is if you believe this stuff and you've never been baptized or you've never become a member of a church, now's the time. What a fun opportunity to be part of our new church. Now's the time. So come and talk to us. Send us email, write us, do whatever we need to get this baby rolling. All right? And uh, we'll be talking about giving you opportunities the next few weeks. So start praying about that and thinking about how you might become more a part of this body as we all become, for the first time, members of this body and this family here that represents Christ. Number two is, do you know Christ? Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell if you were to die today? The most significant that I think I could do, maybe even in my life, is if I could just sit down and talk with one of you and see you come into his kingdom. That is one of the most rewarding things that you can ever experience in life. And I would love to have that opportunity. And so would Mitch and any of us here that you see that are part of the church, please come and talk to us. Um, and even as we look into membership, if you have questions, write those things. We want to make sure everybody understands this. And if anybody has questions, we want to answer them and especially want to give you opportunity to know him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. It's very powerful, and it tells us things that um, are, are sometimes alarming, things that blow our minds because it's just so powerful and so awesome that we can't understand it, things that are so wonderful it almost makes us want to cry for joy uh, right on the spot, and other things that are terrifying, that are frightening. Um, you are an awesome God. Uh, Lord, I, I often think of the movie, you know, I know my... My son just loved Aslan, the character in um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And I love that scene where it says, uh, you know, Aslan ends up, and, and my Cal just loved the part that Aslan was really Jesus in the end. And Lord, I love that part, that, that vision of this lion when they say, um, you know, he's not a tame lion. You are not a tame God. You are a powerful and awesome God. No one has ever been stronger, greater, mightier, more holy. And yet you are a gentle and loving God. A lion that we can crawl up and cuddle with and call Abba Father. Lord, I pray that all of us would have that experience, not just for now, but forever with you in heaven. I pray that for each person in this room and pray that these would be things that would never be altered um, in this church environment. Thank you for your word. Amen.